1: Greetings and welcome to another episode of Footnotes. I am your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, bringing you news and views to help you become a more informed resident of this country, activist, and believer. And I've got a guest today, a very timely guest as we uh, record this. It's like one day before midterms, it's a very fraught political climate, as you well know. And with me today is Doug Padgett, the executive director of Vote common good welcome to footnotes well
0: dr tisby this is a real honor my friend thanks for thanks for having me on especially on such a great day the day before election day of the midterms 2022
1: oh exactly i uh i'm sure the timing worked out on purpose the way it did in a plan far beyond uh my imagining so how did how did you and i first connect i always love it because these stories are so random
0: Well, as far as I remember it, I mean, I've known of your work and and what you've been up to for a while, and uh, you have great influence on what we're doing out here. But I think we first met in the chat room inside of a Zoom call that some other people had put together. And as a lot of people know, when you're on these uh, planning Zoom calls or presentations, there's little side chats that go on between presenters. And uh, so I... I think that's where, or maybe they don't know, but it's <laughs> still like to, little direct yeah, messages. But those, yeah. that's where the juice all, is. All the all the little side talk. You know, it, a lot of us who speak at a lot of events, as you and I do, or uh, host them, we know that very often the the best connections happen, you know, out in the hallway or after the sessions exactly. are done, after the, the meeting formal after the meetings. Same things happen on those on those Zoom calls. We've all found a way to to find each other, you know. And, and we're all we're all trying to do our part out here. I've been an evangelical pastor for my entire adult life, and got into Christianity as a teenager, and have just been really quite shocked at watching the tradition that uh, holds my faith treat politics the way we have in the last uh, six or seven years, um, especially and and. Uh, just feeling like, well, we all need to do our part, and so anytime I find somebody like you from s- other parts of the of the family uh, that are also doing that work, you 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 want to you want to try to find some way to join forces to bring some good.
1: I am so excited that we made that connection because now we get to talk on Mike. I I'm I'm always searching for language, concise language to or or, or at least framing to try to make sense. Of the things happening around me, so you were talking about how, as a pastor and now in this role, how you've things, how you've seen things change, and how how disappointed and disturbed you were in the past six or seven years. How would you describe that change that you observed over the past half decade or more?
0: Well, you, you know uh, what I've noticed is that uh, th- there's always been the the side of the evangelical uh, tradition that's uh, very vocal right now, and. It's always been around, but other people of good faith and good conscience and courage have spoken up and have made sure that those elements that want to push Christian nationalism, want to silence others, want to run some sort of a Religious extremism in our politics and in our religion and Christianity. You know, the people that want to set the boundaries and and describe to the rest of us who should have the power, who should be allowed in, and what they're allowed to do. Those people have always been around. But in the last 10 years, maybe, I have noticed that a lot of my colleagues in the evangelical traditions have just grown increasingly quiet. Or have self-opted out of the system and have turned it over to this portion of the community that is really doing uh, significant harm. And, and that's, that's partly why we started the organization that we did, because we know that for a lot of people, their religion and their politics are really about their identity. It helps frame how they feel good about what they do and how they live in the world. It's a framing narrative for goodness. And so a lot of people feel trapped in that world uh, while they watch spokespeople and leaders um, get quiet, uh, slunk their heads, shift their hands into their pockets and just walk off. And uh, for whatever reason, I've just decided that to abandon 60 million voters in this country without uh, an alternative voice uh, is, is just not a good political move. And it's certainly not a good spiritual and religious move. We need to have people of conscience and faith that continue to speak
1: up. I I think we should come back to that conversation because I think it's a question or an issue a lot of folks are wrestling with. I was very intrigued when I heard about Vote Common Good. I want you to describe your work with it and, and particularly, you know, I think what's distinctive about your approach, which you show so well at explaining to us.
0: Yeah. So what we do at Vote Common Good is we try to encourage faith voters, specifically thinking of evangelicals, white evangelicals and white Catholics who have become unsettled with their identity of religion and politics and want an off-ramp from what's for many of them, has been seen as sort of a Republican highway. And they've been traveling that Republican highway for much of their lives and are looking for an off-ramp. Because for a lot of people, their religious identity came with a political identity that they may not have even chosen. It, I often joke that it's like you went to Wendy's and ordered the number two and it came with that side of fries, and you said to yourself, "I'll oh, I'll only eat half the fries." And by the time you got home, you ate all the fries. You know, oh boy. Um, and I, it's, that's never
1: happened to me. No, <laughs>
0: never. No, none of us have ever ended up with an empty uh, fry container on the way home. That, and and that's something that that a lot of people feel very deeply. Right? Is that like I don't know? I went to. A, I was raised in an evangelical family. I went to a. Christian College somewhere, or I had a personal experience of my faith at a Methodist church, and all of a sudden, the next thing I knew, everything I was hearing in my life was how my faith was leading me to a conservative political agenda, and not even sure exactly how or when it happened that they just became so wedded together that they couldn't pull them apart. So instead of their faith being, you know, the the lettuce, I'm just going to do another random, um, you know, food metaphor here. But instead of, you know, there being a salad here with the lettuce being their faith, and then, you know, you've got some mushrooms on that side salad, or some green peppers, or some onions, and that they could sort of move those around and pick them pick them off when they want to, because we're we're going to have a political identity and we're going to have a religious identity. But for a lot of people, it's not a side salad; it's a smoothie. They've become so blended together that they can taste the flavors, but they don't know how they could ever pull them apart. And so a lot of people watched a number of things happen. For some, it was the Iraq War in the early 2000s. It was the move to militarism. Uh, for some, it was the move to Reaganomics in the 1980s. But to a lot of people, it was the move to a Make America Great Again agenda under the Trump administration that really shocked them. And they said, I cannot believe that the people of my tradition are saying yes to this political invitation, that here's a politician saying, in Donald Trump, saying, if you vote for me, evangelicals, I will give you power. I mean, this is straight out of a temptation narrative, right? Like you you couldn't replay a Jesus-like temptation narrative if you tried any better than that. And instead of this tradition looking at that as a temptation narrative, they just said, you got a deal. We'll take it. And they took the deal. And that is something that is just really, um, really disheartening. So a lot of people have felt, boy, I don't feel at home there anymore, but they're not sure what to do. Because voting—I don't know—voting for a Democrat, something we ask voters to consider doing, just seems like that is so far outside the norm of what they would ever do um, that to get there, uh, they have to go through some sort of a habitual—they uh, uh, have to go through some sort of a change of a of a pattern, a habitual pattern change, and we—that's the area of work that we do—is how do we help these voters who are experiencing this change to act on it just to be really blunt, we, we don't travel the country. Um, we travel around in a big bus and we run campaigns and we do lots of um, prophetic acts out in public you know, we did a bike ride across country and a walk from Charlottesville to Washington, DC. Like we do these spectacles in order to um, capture people's attention and to invite them into a, a big project project. And we don't do this because we want to change voters minds. We do this because we know there's millions of people of faith whose minds have already changed from that political identity and they're not sure what to do with it and they really feel homeless politically homeless they feel afraid they've already lost friends and family they're not sure what to do and you know all of us just you know we don't we don't want to be alone and for uh, many people the um their political identity is shaped because they're seeking some sort of community to be involved in So we have a th- particular theory of change we can talk about later about what, what has to be in place for someone to make a habitual change. But that's the work that we do. And we try to do it in the media. We do it in conversations. We try to train candidates to speak to faith voters in a way that could feel invitational. Uh, we try to work with the political superstructure, and we try to work with churches on recognizing Christian nationalism. Like it's a big project, you know, and we're a small little organization with a big appetite to, to do a, to do a lot of things. So, so that's what we do. Uh, fundamentally, is is how do we help people find an identity narrative that can be something other than what they've been trapped in, if they if they feel like they're trapped in it.
1: I really appreciate that framing of uh, an identity narrative because if 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 we really try to explain why so many of us uh, feel so strongly about politics is because it's wrapped up in our identity. So I wonder if you can speak to the phrase, make America great again. (laughs) What Uh, parts of an identity narrative did that appeal to?
0: One of the realities that that we try to address in, in our work is that the American psyche is built around this hero, villain, victim, narrative. So you think about politics and you see it really clearly, but it's it's also true in a lot of other spaces of our of our storytelling about ourselves. Someone's a hero, someone's a villain, and there's some of us who are affected by the bad actions of the villain and hopefully will be saved by the hero. So that's really common. It's not healthy, it's not true to the human experience I'll suggest in a moment what we think is a better alternative to the hero villain victim story, but that's, what's alive and well. And what the make America great again, did that phrase was to weaponize the idea that all of you people who believe in us can take us back to a time before the villains took over this previous time when things were good. And here's the thing. Everyone knows there was no previous time when things were great pick a day and say, oh, it was all great then. And you, you'll just tally up whatever was going on in 1985, 1955, 1905, 1805, you know, 1775. And, you know, we're not, we weren't living in a world where we were all doing better because we were all doing better. We're living in a world where some people were were harmed, were restricted, were left out, were, were trafficked. Like there's all kinds of things going on in those periods. But that's not what the, that's not how the notion make America great again functions for people. It functions by helping that person feel like they're the hero. And in the hero villain victim story, Jamar, here's the thing. Nobody ever sees themselves as the villain. Like rarely is somebody like, Hey, you know what? I sort of looked over the landscape of what's been going on. I think I'm the bad guy here. Yeah, you know, nah. uh, and and if you do, then it's only. And as soon as I realized I was the bad guy, I'm such a hero. I changed my ways, right? <laughs> you know, it, right. It's, yeah. It's, that it, was then. This is now. Before that I was there. before. And so you get a lot of that. You know, um, you, you think. I mean, just think about what's going on with Herschel Walker right now in the race in Georgia. Mm-hmm. They've. The kinds of things that have come out about how he's lived his life are often referred to by the people who support him as the villain narrative. But now they've switched that around to, oh, no, that's that's the old Herschel Walker, right? So that, yeah, this yeah. is what we do, right? And look, I'm all for redemption. Redemption's a great story. But we only see ourselves as the hero or the or the victim. And so what Make America Great, again, phrase does and how it functions is as one of those that gives you two options. You're the hero or you're the victim. And there's even more power in seeing yourself as the victim. That's going to then act in such a way to bring a hero to the uh, to the to others like you. And this becomes the whole narrative of Christians in in the United States, which is really shocking. You know, people like you and I who spend a lot of time thinking about religion and paying attention to its influence in the world and where it sits in the social structure. We're like, Christianity has the power in the United States. Like, and evangelicals are a part of that, and Catholics are a part of that. But they speak about it, the the centers of power in evangelicalism and Catholicism speak about it as if they're the the victims of some big, powerful forces that are trying to take everything away from them. So these are the narratives that that are afoot. And then it's just statedly, um, you know, white, white narrative. Um, The again references back to some period of time when some uh, notion was that uh, that whiteness was the norm and uh allowed for diversity, but diversity only from whiteness as the as the default, so it is it is all of those things happening at once, and so the people that I know who really attach to that phrase they if they were listening to this right now, you know they might recognize i 'm speaking about it in ways that aren 't as positive as they would hold it, but I think they would nod their heads and say yeah that's that's pretty accurate as to how we f- how we feel about things
1: that is incredibly powerful because. I think it does behoove us who, you know, want a multiracial democracy and all those things to really understand and not simply condemn uh, the people for whom an idea, a notion like make America great again is appealing. Like there is value in at least understanding why other people Come down on on these things differently, um, but even if there's a narrative, that narrative has to be crafted. That narrative has to be developed, and identity narratives, especially, are are stories that are told and retold. So, what I'm thinking about is, in your view, like how did these messages come about? Um, how how historically, or through what channels? Um, in other words, if I have this idea that the nation is no longer great and that it is no longer great a lot because we're not so-called Christian anymore. We have all of these other people, brown and black and immigrant and queer people uh, who, are, who are getting us off track. How did the components of that narrative come together in a message that evangelicals heard over and over and over again?
0: Yeah, well, well, they come through, um, they come through many channels, including religious traditions. They also come through what I refer to as non-identical repetition. So, what I like about that phrase is that it helps us recognize a reality of our world that things tend to repeat, and they're not exactly the same as they were before. You can find some difference, but it's the same thing again, right? And something like. Make America great again is a non identical repetition to a phrase from the 1930s, make America great. Right, and this was Lindbergh and the others who were isolationists and didn't want the United States being involved in global issues. They wanted to reduce immigration in the country. They were still unnerved by the period of Reconstruction in the country and what was going to become of of former slaved communities and how what kind of power were they going to have in the United States? And that was actually reminiscent of you know an 1860s you know act and the, the Chinese Exclusion Act um, that was going to be sure that we prevented certain other people from being in the united states and if they were they were going to only be here as laborers so you have these narratives that are already in the in the psyche they're in the grandparent's story in the great-grandparent's story so when they're told they sound familiar because they are familiar like we're we're not getting rid of those In some ways, the pandemic, uh, while we all had to pay attention to the development of viruses, you know, because of COVID, I think it's a really helpful metaphor for us to recognize that just as there are actual viruses that have been around a long time and morph and change. There's also thoughts and ideas that function in a similar way. They're past and they change and they morph. And people who study, you know, epidemiologists and public health people, when the pandemic happened, they're like, oh, this is a coronavirus. We know coronaviruses. We know how these things work. We studied like we're ready to go. There's people who recognize these narrative viruses and can say, we recognize them. We see where they're coming from. And so you start to realize that, we're never going to be rid of these ideas. We're not going to even be rid of these viruses. and right? We're going to have to learn to live with them. What we want to do is keep them from being a pandemic. Let them be endemic. But in our society, these same ideas that exist now, these same restrictions are not going to be exactly the same. They'll pick a different group of people, or maybe in the 1890s, they were going to include the italian community in that and now they want to include the lgbtq community so it's not exactly the same but it's the same thing right it's right, that same right. thing that's happening again and again and so because we're our, our our system is susceptible it makes the transmission of these notions and ideas um easier to easier to handle. And the same lies, the same stories. I know a bunch of us are, are watching the Ken Ken Burns story about World War II, which is out on PBS right now. And it's really about immigration and how the United States would not allow increased immigration to the United States, which also led to the Jewish community not being allowed to migrate into the United States in the nineteen thirties and how that contributed to the the context of the massacre of the second world war. And when you watch something like that, it's, I mean, these are phrases precisely from our current vantage point. You you could, you could swap out, you know, swap out characters. So that's part of what's going on. And this is partly why the hero victim villain story doesn't help us because it doesn't actually recognize the long frame systemic narratives that are continuing to be in place. And they're competing with other narratives. They're competing with these other, other notions and ideas. So we have to build a, a healthy body politic and a healthy, um, uh, spiritual communities as well that can resist these because our spiritual communities and our politics have been used uh, in the past, and will be used again to to forward these same these same notions. So that's the thing that we're facing, right? Is like, and so what do you do about all that? You know, well, <laughs> uh,
1: you get on yeah. a bus and you go across the country trying to persuade people. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, yeah. so I'm I'm really excited to talk about. You talked about having a better framing, um, but just before that, is there a, a narrative identity or an identity narrative among? more moderate or left-leaning people and are there blind spots that that we should be aware of or is that a false equivalency and and folks aren't dealing in identity narratives in in quite the same way as those on the far right
0: yeah uh, you know it's hard I, i don't want to compare at all to the struggles that i see happening in the progressive circles that i run around in and and feel at home in with what's going on in the right um, right. Like there's there's not a correlation um, between the violent acts of white nationalists and terrorist groups in the United States that the FBI tracks and follows. There's not a track to the violence being done by gun violence in our schools. There's not a correlation to insurrections. There's not a correlation to to election denying. There's not a correlation to the, the suppression that's happening to try to keep some people disenfranchised in this country. So I, I don't know they're they're on different 100%. different scales of, of human, you know. When I, I have friends that try to say like, well, all of you you people didn't say anything about the Black Lives Matter um, protests in 2020, and I take that personally. Living in Minneapolis and being right down the street from wow. where George Floyd was murdered and being shot at by the police with with paintballs and been maced by the police on those streets, so like. When I get into these conversations, th- these are not uh, these are not theoretical comparisons. But uh,
1: yeah. um,
0: you know, if you think um, people in anger at the, uh, another police execution of a citizen and a black man in America, and people uh, ravaging the target on the corner of Lake Street and Hiawatha in Minneapolis, if you want to compare that to hang Mike Pence and people storming the Capitol to try to stop the establishment of the free and fair election in the United States as an insurrection. If you can't tell the difference between those two things, we have a whole lot of other conversations to talk about, about Absolutely. moral equivalency. So there's just a lot there, right? But again, what happens is we shift into a hero narrative uh, or a villain mm-hmm. narrative or a victim narrative and... That uh, easy. Yeah. It's because it's just ready for us. And this is the thing that for me, my, my Christianity helps me with other people from other traditions. They lean into um, teachings from their tradition. So we, we all have access to a way out. And for me, it's Jesus teaching that you love your neighbor. You love your God and you love your enemy without distinction. So we don't, by the Jesus narrative, we don't do the hero, hero, villain, victim story. we, we, Take our commitment to and care for and support of all on this equal on this equal footing. Um, So I think that's 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 the way forward. And I'll just say that there's an awful lot of pushback in in many of the progressive political circles that I'm in about giving any moment of even empathy, meaning understanding of how do people end up believing the things they believe. And look, I, I've spent my adult life in the belief formation world as a preacher and a writer and an evangelist and all the stuff you know that I do in a pastor. Like belief is one of the things and core narratives we're doing that work. And you know, any of us who do this work, we all know that people don't choose their beliefs. You know, in some dispassionate way, their beliefs are just living in them for some reason. And they're trying to reconcile their lives with what they think and what they believe and how they act. And we're all trying to make sense of this, right? So Mm. people are struggling with, how do I make sense of what's going on? And so to treat people as if they are simply um, choosing wrongly in their belief, as opposed to we are all victims of the things going on in our heads and we're all doing good at some times and we're all perpetrators of harm upon others at some moment yes. so um, we have this shared we have this shared narrative right and what we try to suggest in our world is the alternative to the hero victim story is the the human sojourn story that okay. we're all making our way as humanity through life and trying to find ways to have more life together. And if we see one another as that, and then some people are worth following in that pursuit, some people are not worth following. But if we would understand one another as part of this shared human experience, um, it gives us a different, a different frame point, right? We're all part of this, this human life. And I like the phrase, you know, we're, we're all trying to walk each other home at night. And it gets <laughs> scary out there. And so we're trying to get somewhere. And as a country and as a faith, if we would start to see that, it doesn't mean you pull away from somebody's telling us to go, you know, left down the riverbank, and somebody else is saying, go over the mountain top. Like, okay, there's choices we have to make as humanity. Which way are we going to go and how are we going to live? But we're in this thing together. And if we don't find ourselves, if we don't find a way to be in this and to um, bridge the the horrors of our wrong actions with something that binds us together. If we only do 50% plus one for power, if we only walk into the, if if every day is as if we've walked in the voting booth, which people will have to do tomorrow if they haven't done it already. And I hope they do. They're going to have a binary choice, right? You're going to vote for this candidate or that candidate. And if you vote for both of them, they're going to throw out your ballot. Like in that world of voting, it's designed to be binary. You pick one. Or if you do a ranked choice voting, as they do where I'm from, you can pick three, but you know, but one's going to be at the top of your list. So it's designed as binary, and that's okay. That's what we'll do when we vote. But when you walk out of the voting booth, you have to leave the binary behind. You can't mm-hmm. keep doing this. It's us or them. It's our country or their country. We're taking it back. They're taking it. Like that story that we're living in, it's not accurate in my view to to what's really going on in america and as you travel around the country and watch the real life happen for real life people you know you realize okay politics has a lot to do with the well-being of our situation in this world but it's not the only thing it might not even be the most important thing like there are there have been people who have overcome terrible politics for human thriving in our country and and around the world so there is a way for us to uh, pursue all this that I I don't know that, that that's sort of what we're hoping for, you know, that. So in other words, we're trying to call people to something a little, something a little more um, and help people get freed up from these, these psychological and mental and political media traps that we find ourselves in.
1: You're touching on so many important points. One, I myself find my, uh, I, I really like the idea of, of fellow sojourners. Right. And I use the, a metaphor of a journey toward justice uh, for much of the same reasons, for empathy um, and understanding not to, because I think when people hear that, especially in our political social climate, they're hearing compromise, they're hearing make friends with the devil kind of a thing. And what I mean is having compassion that somebody is at a different place on their journey than you are, that in many cases, you were where they once are now, so let's not be so arrogant as to say that you were never subject to it. And the other thing which you touched on, and I think is also related to the journey and the, the sojourn metaphor, is, is we tend to act our way into belief <laughs> rather than believing our way into acting, um, which is to say that our environment, our community, our um, community, the situation and circumstances that we're in is that whole nature nurture thing, um, sort of that that the nature uh, the 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 way we're nurtured in the broadest sense forms that identity. And if we were in some sort of similar situation, we may have ourselves been formed in ways that we now condemn. Maybe not, but there's also a power in that, which is to say, that if you have different contexts if you're exposed if you're brought if you if your view is broadened then your narrative can change. And I think that's what happened to me moving down to a place like the delta from the Chicagoland area and being exposed to poverty and rural areas and the history of the south absolutely with that change of context came sort of a change in my own identity narrative. So you're in the change business and You talked about, um, in a conversation with me before, not just the hero, victim, villain framework, but three components of change. I would love for you to name those and, and talk about how you utilize the three components of change in your work.
0: This is what framed up the organization that I run now called Vote Common Good. It's what framed up the church work I did. I was a pastor for 20 years in a church that I started in Minneapolis called Solomon's Porch, and a lot of leader training work it's it 's built around the the understanding that how someone goes through a, a change in identity that becomes meaningful to them and this can be true of religious identity political identity it can, it has to do with breaking habits or forming new habits so you think about people that are learning a new language you know say they 're using one of the apps on their phone or um, somebody that's doing a new eating program like Noom or someone that decides they want to go walk the Camino or this year I started playing guitar. Like any right. of these uh, are the same, uh, have the same three components that have to be in place for someone to go through uh, a change from one pattern of life to a different pattern of life. And that is that they have to take in new information. There has to be an invitation and there has to be a community of participation. So, the, the, the first one of those, which a lot of people think is pretty much the extent of it. And by the way, those three, invitation, information, and participation, the, they don't have to go in any particular order. And when you talk uh-huh. to someone who's broken a pattern or developed a new habit, they'll often talk about these in a very narrative way um, without identifying each one of them and not, in, not necessarily in any particular order right so when i you know in college that i was uh, i studied cultural anthropology and as when you there study cultural anthropology in the 80s you know you do ethnographic research so you yeah. interview people and have them tell their stories and then from that you extrapolate so it's different than what sociologists tend to do which is they ask people questions and get responses to questions well in ethnography you have people tell stories and then from those stories you start to find the patterns the non-identical repetitions that, that show up. So what we notice is that that these three components, information, invitation, and participation, are always there. And, but they kind of matter to, to look at for a moment independently, even though they might happen in different orders and sometimes even simultaneously. So when you talk to some, we, we did a project around politics with people who voted for Trump in 2016 and chose not to vote for him in 2020. So before the election in 2020, we spoke with them. Uh, and that this change had come because of their faith. So they were people who are self-identified from all around the country as because of my Christian faith, I'm not voting for the person I voted for in 2016. And we wanted to know what happened there. And what Mm -hmm. we saw is this, this, these patterns are, are there. And it's just true across the board. This people would say things like, well, I learned something new. Some bit of information came in for some of them. They said, when I heard, Family separation as the strategy for telling immigrants not to seek asylum in the United States. That was it. Or when I saw what the, how the president acted. So something new came in, or I thought he was just going to be a businessman or. This is the best part. A lot of times, people would be like, "You know, it's kind of funny. I was watching a documentary about how food is made in the country. You know, like where food comes from, and it just opened up my eyes to this thing." Or I started to, or you know, my daughter came out as as gay or transgender, and that kind of opened up the world to me. And you know, like some bit of new information from yeah. a news item, or a documentary, or a personal experience somewhere. And when people tell you that piece of the story, what was it, they hold that piece of the story as precious, you know, like they know how, um, they would get teary eyed about it, um, because they felt so fortunate that this little bit of truth for them, showed up and they recognized it like there is a deep humility when people when people go through a change and they tell you like hey how'd you start like how'd you lose weight or how'd you learn that new language or why'd you switch your vote people will be like oh let me tell you and they get real earnest you know about it it's really it's really great it's a conversion
1: story it's a it's a testimony yeah
0: that's what i was going to say this is what our traditions have lost and frankly this is what our our progressive traditions don't allow for, which the conservative Mm -hmm. traditions of Christianity are built on, which is tell us about your change. Mm -hmm. I don't know why progressives want to act like, or seem to act as if so many things in our society are permanent, unchangeable history doesn't support that idea, current experience. Like there's just no support for the idea, but boy, it is like, you you would think people, you know, uh, have no other option, but to believe that the current status of things are the, are the way uh, it's always going to be. And all we can do is change turnout models. Like Mm. good grief. If we don't get beyond the turnout model for our politics, we're, we're just, this is really ridiculous. So anyway, people are going through these changes. So they take in some new information and A lot of times progressives will think that's all people need. Like, well, why don't they just watch the news? Or if they'd stop watching Fox News, then everything would change. Not one person I've ever talked to said to me, oh, you know how I went through a political change or a spiritual? I stopped watching Fox News. Hmm. As you said, they stopped watching Fox News because a change happened. (laughs)
1: <laughs> not not uh, right, it, it, it didn't sit there and, and, and say, you know, I want to broaden my perspective, so I'm going to stop watching this thing. Now, something was disruptive, something kind of came That's in, to, and probably unexpected a lot of times. Um, and it, it just happens.
0: It was a eureka moment, or it was an uh oh moment, or it was an aha. We, we do this thing where we say, like, sometimes people's spiritual awakenings are only an amen, like, they think, Oh, I saw something, I was like, Amen to that but more people are changed by an uh-oh than an amen mm. like a mm. oh boy oh boy Say this that is again. this yeah more people are changed by an uh-oh in their life than they are by an amen and our churches need to help people find more uh-ohs like it's not working now is it and they're like oh my gosh now what right like that's <laughs> the moment of deep um uh, of deep C- connection. So some information comes in somehow, and an amen, and uh oh, and aha, something right comes in, uh, strikes them. And then the other component is that there has to be an invitation to act on it, and this is also too often a missing piece. That you need someone, and sometimes it's a stranger, but more often it's someone close to you that says, "You can do it. You can act on it. I- I'm here for you. Uh, give it a try." I mean, this is what the influencer thing is all about, right? Just think about how we talk about influencers in our society. It's, oh, there's a living person right there that figured out how to, you know, get rid of all the junk in her house. So Marie Kondo all of a sudden becomes this influencer, which influencer is really another word for an inviter, the person that extends the invitation come see my thing come see what i'm doing here see how it's possible so we love our celebrities to be that and sometimes it happens that way but more often than not it's somebody else in your life and often when people have gone through this change they the, the the person the there's a community of people who gave them an invitation right so there's a bunch of people around they might start naming them they'll be like yeah, I had this friend on Facebook and she would just keep writing this stuff. And then I followed up with her and I just asked her and there it was like, right. Like it's something because people aren't foolish. They're not blind. They just need someone to help them act on this information that they've, that they've got. Right. Someone says, and so that's what we do. We sometimes also in the world, you call it evangelism, right? Where you're just the one out there extending the invitation and you know, I, I think if if we're going to be influencers or inviters, for my tradition, you also pay attention to Jesus's um, reminder that if you go into a town and you and you speak your shalom, you speak your peace, and people don't want it, just knock the dust off your feet, don't disturb anything there, and move on to the next town. Like there's no yeah. point in inviting people to do things they don't want to do. Yeah, right? That's right. Don't run a butcher shop inside of a you know inside of a vegan you know uh, commune. It's, it's not going to work. So. <laughs> There's no point. And sometimes people just love and look, we, we put ourselves in our work in all kinds of situations. You know, I've been in bars arguing with proud boys and we've been, I mean, we've been, we go to all the, all the, we love talking in, you know, what are oh. traditionally thought of as red places. And we get going to these places unafraid to do that, to do that work and talk about it. Not because we want to talk to people that don't want to listen, but because we know that there's a remnant of people in there who are already in a process, and we're just the fortunate people to join into their community of inviters who wanna initiate something different. I think and then that's the, so
1: powerful. Yeah, go for it. Uh, so it's information, invitation. There and, you go. Um, A uh, community of participation. Yeah. Participation. <laughs> Fair. For the nation. <laughs> we, we Sometimes
0: we work up. We've we got oh, like this five, six part. Yeah. Oh, it's unbelievable. Uh, we just giggle about this stuff. But then this community of participation becomes really crucial. And that is the invitation is to act on this new way of thinking or being. And then to say, not only can you do it, but we'd like you to join us while you do it. That you mm. feel like you're a part of something. That there's an us. The number of people who have said, And we see it just, I mean, yesterday there was a woman with tears in her eyes. And she said to, to me, said, I had to drive an hour and 15 minutes to come to this rally that we did. And, um, and she said, I just wish there was someone around my small town who I could talk to about this stuff, but there isn't anyone. People feel so alone. There are millions and millions of people in the process of this change. And one, one woman said to me, I said, hey, do you think you'd be willing to tell your story uh, publicly in our stuff? Could we record you? And she said, oh, she was she was an older woman in her late 60s, 70s, somewhere in there. And she said, oh, there's there's no way I'm telling that story. And I said, oh, can you tell me why? And she said, oh, because I drink coffee with the women at Dunkin' Donuts on Tuesday. And if they were to ever see this, they they wouldn't let me drink coffee with them anymore. More community. She's just literally saying, like, I live in a small town where. Right. There's no way I'm giving that up. And so people end up.
1: So critical, right? In what keeps people in and what keeps people from speaking up, even if they could be sort of intellectually persuaded differently, the cost and it gets back to the identity narrative. My identity is wrapped up in my community. And if my community is no longer my community because they reject this new information I've got, uh, then where am I left? I'm alone. And I'd rather be part of this group that, that, that believes some things that I don't agree with than to be alone. Totally. And
0: therefore I'll leave those thoughts and those invitations undealt with because I can't, I can't go that I can't do that. I'm not going to go down. So this is the reality that people live in all the time. Look, any of us who've worked with people who are struggling with addiction in their life or with, you know, whether it's chemical addiction or behavioral addiction, this information, invitation, community of participation becomes really clear. You see it playing out and you know that you can't drag somebody into it. You can't force them into it. You can't change the context. You can't mandate it. That's not how it works because that's not how human beings change. Whatever the muse is that gives us beautiful music and art and poetry, it's the same spirit that gives us change and understanding and empathy and deepening. And so people not only need a community to feel safe, but they need a community to help them figure out what to leave behind and what to bring with them. And yeah. Sometimes in our spaces, religious spaces and political spaces, um, we want people to uh, pay penance longer than they should before they f- get to become part of that new community.
1: Interesting.
0: It's it's. Do you, do you remember when COVID was first uh, around and we didn't know if it was passed by touching things and people would have their mail delivered to their house and leave it outside and for forty eight hours or something before they would touch yep. it because we just didn't know. That's what it feels like sometimes when someone says, hey, I've switched. You know, I, I say to people that we do lots of trainings on this stuff and on Christian nationalism and so on. And we'll say, how, how, how long does someone have to go without being a Republican Christian nationalist before you welcome them in to your community, maybe your church mm. or something else? Is it a day? Is it an hour? Could it be negative one hour? Could they be one hour away? Would you let them in if they're just on the verge? Or is it a year? Is it never? How how long how long does it go before someone says, well, you know, this person really, you know. I mean, look, I, I voted for Bush twice. And there are people who, when I say that, they are done talking, like, they're just like, uh, you up. are, uh, you're, like, there is nothing you could have done from 2004 forward to make up mm. for that. <laughs> right? mm. Like like literally, right? You're talking about 18 years, right? Some kid was born that year and she, and she went to college yesterday. Like uh. n- not a but there's not a lifetime that will make up for that, right? Or people that will say, Hey, I voted for Trump in 2020. You know, I mean, frankly, you know, I'll call, I'll call a little BS on my own self. I still have a little hard time with Liz Cheney and, and, you know, uh, and Kinzinger and these others that, that voted yeah. for Trump in November of 2020 and then turned on him on January 7th. But, you know, I get it. It's hard for some of us to sort of, you know, how could you have been in so long and what took you so long? Um, the resistance to allowing people into communities that are different from the one that they've behaved in is such an important, uh, limiting factor for seeing significant change
1: mm-hmm. um, in,
0: in our community. And look, in our biblical narrative for people that follow it, the, the, the conversion of, of Saul, you know, the, the, the zealot murdering Christians in the book of acts to him being the apostle Paul has this same narrative, right? He tries to go into the community. They're afraid of him. He goes and lives at the house of salmon or Simon, the Tanner. And like, and and then he's kind of brought around and then still traveling around. He's never really welcomed and he's not sure what he wants to be. Be And that's a good story. Not because the apostle Paul is special, but because it's this shared narrative of this human experience that we all know so well, right? Oh yeah. We're excluding people. And, um, you know, you have that, that story of Peter going into the house of Cornelius. It's another one. Like when I do a whole biblical stuff on this, it's that story right here. The follower of Jesus as a Jew goes into the house of a Roman centurion who's had this experience with the spirit of God and, and, and says to him, you know, it's, it's against our religious law for me to even be here with you and speaking to you. But then Peter says this little line, but now I see how clear it is that God doesn't show favoritism. Mm. And you think to yourself, really now, like whatever period of time that <laughs> was after, like it wasn't walking around with Jesus for years. It wasn't the teachings. It wasn't the sermon on the Mount. It was, there were a lot of all, signs
1: before that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All, all this, all the, all the tech, the Jewish texts that uh, Peter should have and would have known
1: well. Mm. Like you couldn't, know that. you couldn't put that together before then, yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. I can, i i I can relate. I've heard that as well, and I, I want to go back to something that that you touched on in the beginning uh, about why you're doing this work and and not leaving. You know, these 60 million voters without a witness or 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 an alternative voice. I find a lot of people, and even in my own journey, asking ourselves, should we stay? Is it time to go? Um, if I stay are my efforts fruitless kind of a thing? And by stay, I mean in your particular church, in your particular denomination, maybe even in the Republican Party. I don't know. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that about the question of whether to stay and try to work for change from within these evangelical circles, create separation, and work in other means. Well, man, this is
0: just the this is the heart of the question when it finally gets down to it for people, right? Because when you start talking about identity, then you ask yourself a question, what's the purpose of my identity? So my identity is what I, how I tell myself I fit into the world. That's what yeah. an identity is, right? It's, it's you making sense of the world. And so you take certain allegiances, certain convictions, certain practices or obligations, and it gives you a, an identity. Right. And so we all live in with multiple identities, right? At some point today, you and I will switch from being like podcast personas, uh, to maybe being family or being a parent or a child or a co-worker or a, a customer. Like you have all kinds of identities. We're always living okay. with multiple Now you're talking identities.
1: about intersectionality, Doug. Now I now, can't listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> see, here we go. Joke, and this,
0: <laughs> and no, that is, see, this is why people get freaked out about intersection, intersectionality because they want to sort of suggest, but there's primary identities versus secondary and tertiary identities. Okay. So let's say there, there is but they all are only useful as a function hmm. they only they they serve you in some well some way and they give you a relationship to others so this question about should i stay or should i go right great clash song from the 80s and also a question that we all ask ourselves and how public am i about that and what do i say and what don't i say my suggestion is consider your public identities as a public asset, not a personal reflection. Hmm. Okay. So I'll break this down for a moment. Yeah. That your religious identity. Look, if, if, if there's a reason why for your own conscience, you need to say, I need to no longer use this frame of identity to, I, you know, to, uh, uh, connect me to some other group of people for sure. Right. Like if there's, something personal your own care of yourself loving self is important and don't call yourself a name that's not true but make sure that's all that it is make sure it's not well what i really don't like is um i don't like the people who think like that and i don't want people to not like me so now my identity issue is really about how does it serve me and is it going to help me
1: Ah. Very okay. good. Yep.
0: So so this is where giving this kind of advice is better with a therapist or a spiritual director or a friend late at night over, you know, a, a juice or a glass of wine. <laughs> it, it's, your yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's better, right? It's because then, you know, someone loves you and they're not being hard on your something. But the, 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 the fact remains, there's a lot of people who are quote unquote leaving their tradition. And, you know, like I identify myself as a progressive evangelical, not as a post evangelical, Mm-hmm. And I get it that a lot of people want to say they're post evangelical and they have a hard time with it, but, um, sometimes, uh, that's nece- a lot of times, maybe the majority of times that's necessary, but it also might only be someone just saying like, Hey, I'm just trying to use my identity to leverage for some new opportunities and some new places. Wow. And that's fine too. But if we know that there's millions of people for whom that shared identity gives you a greater opportunity to invite those who are looking for someone to move with them, take them up on it. So I'll tell you what we do. Like when I wake up in the morning, not one morning have I ever woken up since my own conversion to Christianity on April 1st of 1983, right? I mean, I I have one of those evangelical background stories. It's like, I can tell you the day. Yeah. (laughs) It was a Friday. (laughs) It was a Friday about 8.03 at a Jesus People Church, you know, watching a passion play. Like, it's just right out of, it's you know, it's textbook. Yes. Um, But not one day have I woken up and said to myself, oh, proud to be an evangelical. Like, (laughs) Like, that's not a, I've never taken it as a personal narrative. So it's easy for me to not feel any, I'm like, me being an evangelical, that's a social location. Like, my conversion experience, the seminary I went to, the people I've hung around with, I'm an evangelical. And why do I know that? Because I've spent the great portion of my adult life in interfaith Mm. contexts. Christians of different varieties with people of different religion and leadership stuff. And every time I'm in one of those things, people are like, oh, this is Doug. He's an evangelical. (laughs) right?"
1: (laughs) You never told them. They just knew.
0: Because it's true, right? Like, yeah, I mean, like I write books for Zondervan and I went to right. Bethel Seminary and, you know, I have this conversion experience and what? Okay. So, and I'm not a part of a denomination. Like they're like, okay, you know, we're just, we're just it naming like you as anything. a duck. Right. Okay. So, right. so I just say, I, what I'm going to do is find a qualifier on that, that will allow me to have personal identity that I'm comfortable with progressive but also can serve in some other, some other way. So now that's what, you know, Ken Wilber and other people in the kind of spiritual formation worlds. And I like how Ken Wilber thinks about a lot of things. And one of them is he calls it the ability to transcend and include, how do you Mm. transcend your past? Because if you don't transcend where you came from, you're not growing, but how do you also include the best parts of it? Because Mm. if you don't include, you're just going to stay angry so transcendent include becomes this sort of right foot left foot ability to walk forward and that's what i'd encourage people to do so leave if you must of course but don't i i, I don't know i just think that um, i've talked to a lot of people who are really broken hearted about it you know and and maybe i read too much into you know my early days in christianity when i was reading the gospels and reading the book of acts you know and i'm like watching someone like a person big in the Christian faith, like the apostle Paul have to say things like, look, I'm out here talking to the Gentiles. That's what I'm up to. That's what I'm reaching. I'm reminding them that, that God's vision of the world includes all of us and there's no boundaries and we all live and move and have our being in God. So I'm talking to the Gentiles, but I really wish I was talking to my own, my own tradition. You know, uh, my heart is still in, you know, in the, in the, the Jewish community that, that I'm yeah. now excluded from. So I don't know. It feels like there's a way that's not just, but I know people, you know, that leave their traditions um, and they, they, they need to for, for personal reasons. They also need to for a, for a job, or they need to just to feel better about themselves. Um, so I don't know. That's that's a long rambling yeah. answer. You probably just edit because it I don't just, know if it makes any sense.
1: No, it 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 does make sense. It's not neat. It's not um, clean and tidy. And I am a strong believer in um, ex- integrating our experiences. Right. So I have a very evangelical background. Um, right down to saying the sinner's prayer and having that you know, point in time conversion kind of experience. and i'm have intentionally moved um away from those circles because of the things that I've experienced around racism and and injustice. But at the same time, that is very self-consciously a part of my testimony. And it actually is 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 much of what gives me the invitation or the opportunity among some to even speak into their experience because that's their experience, and they know that I know some of it, or at least I can speak the language and whatnot, so I'm just saying to our listeners, like God has given you a story, and you may not be excited about all of the parts of the story in your past, but there there's nothing that's wasted, there's nothing that wasted is wasted, so whatever you feel called to do. All of those parts can go into it. It's gonna take time, it's gonna take pain, it's gonna take processing to figure out how they all fit, but you can't you can't undo that. You can't go back and not be where you were. Um, so you might as well <laughs> figure out how to use it well. Doug, um just as we wrap up here, any closing thoughts on I'm not asking you to make predictions on the election, but in terms of this this election cycle, uh, do you Do you sense a shift? Um, Where this is coming from? I think this is—it's—it's the first national election since um, January sixth, right? First midterms. Um, It's one of these things that it feels different. Uh, So, can you talk about how you think the landscape for the nation is changing, or might even be affected? In this season,
0: my hope is that there's a number of us who are working on a 40 year project, even mm-hmm. while we work on a two year and four year project.
1: So, I come on, we I, I need a four hour project for change. Come on, <laughs> 40 great. years, no, that's <laughs> that's <great. laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. great. The four
0: hour, the, the, like, remember the four hour work week that book that was yeah, out, like the four, uh, you know, the uh, quick change, um, absolutely. I, I hope, and I do see it happening, I think it really is taking taking root, that the peak of the kinds of voters that we want to connect with being hardwired into the Republican Party to such a degree that they'll just take the deal that was meant as a temptation, um, that's been coming for 40 plus years. Like If you go from 1976, when Jimmy Carter was an evangelical president yes. from Georgia as a Democrat, to 2016, you ask yourself, what happened over that? Over that arc, people did work. It didn't just happen. It happened because of the intentions and the work and the investments that went on for those forty years, in both directions: evangelicals and hardwire uh, conservatives and and Christian nationalists doing particular work, and Democrats deciding these are voters we're not interested in so much any longer. So it was there was work being done across the across the political mm-hmm. system. My hope is that we get to something closer to parity 40 years from now. So, you know, in 2066 that people are like, I don't know, 50% of evangelicals and yeah, whatever, whatever, I'm like, oh yeah, that seems, seems about right. You know, it's going to, if it's a yeah. half the country thing, it's like a half the country thing. Yeah. Um, this, this 80% or hard, you know, being hardwired and, and having it as a voting constituency doesn't have to, doesn't have to remain permanent. Um, so that that's what I hope. We believe that there's five to fifteen percent changeable um, voters, uh, pattern change voters in in every in every election. Are you going to get all of those? It's candidate dependent. It's topic dependent. It's dependent on a, on a lot of things. We saw it happen in twenty sixteen, uh, or sorry, in twenty twenty. Um, this will be a real test to see how much of that of that shift has has uh, continued to to take place. I will tell you the issues that I think should be motivating. Social conscious democratic voters are not being talked about in ways that they need, that they need to be talked about. And that includes race and the economy and immigration. And they're not being fronted. The, the forces on the religious right and on the conservative right have chosen to turn all of those into boogeymen to basically scare off any Democrats from talking about it. So critical race theory became this thing that people wanted to throw out. So now anytime someone tries to talk about the systemic issues of race and how we need to deal with them uh, uh, across our system, it, there's a, there's a, a flash response, right. And it's causing yeah. Democrats to to pull back. Same thing with immigration, same thing with, you know, structures of our economy that are not uh, benefiting all people. And, you know, I, what I want is a world where everyone has enough and no one needs to be afraid. So if you ask mm-hmm. me, what would, it, what, what would it look like if the dream of America and the dream of God were to come true? Well, everyone would have enough and no one would have to be afraid. Um, that would be a among the markers, right? That I think would be, wow. it would be really great. Now, I don't know that, um, that our, I, I feel like what I'm seeing out in the places where we are, and we've been uh, more than 10 States, we've worked with hundreds of candidates. We've run, you know, in the last two months, we've run nearly 50 events with live people wow. in rooms and, we're traveling around and talking to people at truck stops. (laughs) We're just, we're out in the midst, you know, right now I'm in Michigan. We're in Ohio yesterday. We're in Pennsylvania the day before that, like we're around. And to my regret, it all feels like it's just getting back to turnout model. And, Mm. um, and the idea that, Hey, there's a, There's something shifting and happening in the people and we want to help bring them along and there's a movement afoot, which I know can't happen in every single election, but there have been times in our history, you know, if people think back to what they got excited about with Barack Obama in 2007 and 2008, that was what was going on. And terrifyingly, if people look at what was making people attracted to Donald Trump in 2016, it was also that. Goodness. Right. There was this whole other group of people getting really excited, something new, you know, there was a change of foot and we're So now both of those, you know, one that's, you know, unfortunately 2008 was a long time ago. And not only in political years, just in calendar years, like just remember how long ago that was. Um, so I don't see a lot of that happening right now. It feels yeah. like um, this election cycle is going to be a turnout model cycle. So that being the case, but if you're working in 40 years, then you say, okay, well, that's a, that was a, this was an electoral season, you know, we're going to have, we're going to have 20 of these in the course of this project. So this is one of them and then okay. we get to a presidential yeah. election. And so, uh, I, I don't know. I just hope that the people who are also trying to work on, on significant narrative change and changing the, the structure of how we interact with one another don't lose heart. Um, mm. Because the political system is not incentivized for the political system to change away from the hero, villain, victim story. I mean, people that write ads are not writing ads about, hey, we're all just trying to walk each other home at night. And can we all recognize the fact that there's a good path and there's and there's and there's bandits on the road and we just need to, you know, protect ourselves and make sure that we stay safe and make sure yeah. Like no one's doing that, right? That's that's not vote as if
1: your life depends. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And
0: and so I, I you you know, um I guess, I guess we'll see though. I, don't I, I, you know, we, we run a lot of numbers in our world because we only want to go to places where we think uh, affecting the, the narrative that we can affect would matter. So we kind of get real strategic about the locations where we are. So we're obsessing about, you know, 12 congressional house congressional races and five Senate races. Think about this for a minute. There's, you know, 500 races or 460 races or something that are going to be federal level on the ballot. And there's maybe 17 that are going to make any difference, right? Mm. Mm. <laughs> and only, fi- only five of those are statewide. Yeah. Only in five states. And then in the others, there's just um, small little congressional districts. You know, we were in New Jersey in one small little congressional district. And you're like, wow, this seat could determine which political party has power for the next two years to set legislation in the United States of America. This is unbelievably unacceptable that, you know, it comes down to this.
1: Um, so, it gets really chilling, well, what I love about you is you you 're a theorist you 're a philosopher you create you, you, you create or uh, adopt these frameworks we talked about hero victim villain, we talk about information uh, uh, invitation, communities of participation, we talk about being fellow sojourners and so that 's why I wanted to talk to you is uh, so that you would share with folks those frameworks to help us understand what we're all a part of and and also how to to change and and move closer toward flourishing. So Doug Paget, thank you so much for joining us on footnotes. Thank you for putting in the miles on the trail uh to to persuade people um lovingly and persistently. Uh how can people follow you and can keep up with your work?
0: Yeah, vote, votecommongood.com is our website and that's our you know, moniker all over the all the social places and uh, vote common good or some version of that, depending how long they let us have for a, for a handle. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so so that's the place, and uh, we we do lots of trainings. We have lots of we have many invitation points. Uh, we we do a, a variety of things. Some are very electoral, um, and lots of other stuff. So if people have any interest, um, and we're a very join join in kind of group. We have a very low bar for, for participation. Uh, it's a, it's a, 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 come one, come all. We'd, we'd love anyone to participate in any of the stuff that we're up to.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time and your words of hope. Thanks folks. This has been footnotes. We'll catch you next time.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit Enneagramandmarriage.com to find your
1: chemistry together again, or for the very first time.